welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Shane Chernoff. And I'm Kaylee Chambers. Over 200 people died in a fire that broke out in Brazil nightclub early Sunday morning. More than half of the victims are students of the local university, and this tragedy is hitting home for some University of Florida students as well. Mateus Passaggio, a foreign exchange student from Brazil who is currently studying at UF, brings some insight as to why there were so many students at the club on this night. They have this event to raise money for their graduation. So they have like five majors, like agronomy, vet, vet school, and psychology. And that's why there, are, there were many people at the, the club. He says he has attended the same event back in Brazil, and it is very popular. There is a lot of speculation as to why it was so difficult to escape the building, from bouncers blocking the doorways in order to make them pay their bar tabs, to too many people running at the same time. But Basaggio says friends from back in Brazil have told him something different. Something that I heard that there was the problem, it's that there was only one exit. So there, there were more than 1,000 people and just one exit. That's yeah. why m most of the people were actually dying. Mm -hmm. Whatever the true reason is, there is no question that for those in Brazil and the town of Santa Maria, this one of the biggest tragedies of their lifetime, and Basaggio says they cannot stop talking about it. He also describes a way in which people are coming together to try and help. Like uh, many friends were posting, like they had, they knew people from Santa Maria, and uh, like everybody's talking about this in Brazil. Uh -huh. And they are trying to help, like uh, donating blood and something. Reports say in addition to all the factors being speculated about it, it is certain that the club was over capacity by 100%. There was more than 2,000 people in the club and the maximum there should have been is 1,000. There are currently 82 victims being hospitalized and at least 30 are in critical condition. Investigators are still searching for more details of the incident and funerals have already begun for the victims of one of the worst nightclub tragedies in the world to date. Authorities say a Marion County woman shot the father of her three children through the windshield of her car after she drove almost 10 miles with him on the hood. After Nikki McNeil visited Lamarck Tucker Sr. to drop off her three children, Tucker seized her cell phone and keys. McNeil had a spare key on hand, and according to Marion County Sheriff's Office spokesperson Judge Cochran, McNeil drove away with Tucker clinging to the hood. As she was driving away, for nearly 10 miles, he held onto the car. He was on the hood of the car. He was on the roof of the car. All the while, he was threatening to harm McNeil. After the incident, detectives interviewed available witnesses as well as McNeil. And Cochran said police were satisfied with the information they were able to obtain. Well, the investigation continues um, at this point. At the, at the scene of, the, of this incident, uh, the detectives were satisfied with the the interview of Ms. McNeil, also the witnesses that were available at the time. Police are still looking for witnesses, however, and Cochran says any other witnesses are encouraged to call the Marion County Sheriff's Office. We're hoping that someone saw uh, this guy hanging on to a white uh, Toyota Camry and, and saw them between that 6 and 7 o'clock hour, and would, we hope they would call the uh, Marion County Sheriff's Office. And you can reach the Marion County Sheriff's Office with any information at 352-732-8181.
Gainesville resident Eddie McCullum is facing charges of second-degree murder after he turned himself into police for knocking a man unconscious, which led to his fatal injury. Police were dispatched to Southern Pines apartment Saturday night before witnesses said the 33-year-old McCullum approached Delqueen Durant and struck him in the head, knocking Durant to the ground. An autopsy later found Durant sustained a fatal brain injury after falling to the ground. According to Gainesville Police Department spokesperson Ben Tobias, police believe McCullum did not intend to kill the victim. Well, our investigators don't believe uh, that his intent was to kill him that evening. Uh, what we believe the intent was was to intentionally strike him. Whether he knew that he was going to kill him or not, we're not sure, and we could not prove that. So that would be the reason for the second-degree charge. Tobias added McCollum was co- cooperating fully with authorities and that McCollum will make his first appearance before a judge at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. The American Civil Liberties Union of Florida has joined with several advocacy groups in asking for an international review of the state's new restrictions on restoring the voting rights of ex-felons. As Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports, the groups say they want to put an end to felon disenfranchisement in Florida. The ACLU recently sent a letter to the governor and cabinet informing them that they have asked the Human Rights Committee, an international group created by the United Nations, to step in and review Florida's policy on restoring ex-felons' rights. Here's Joyce Hamilton-Henry with the ACLU. We are hoping that the governor and members of the cabinet will respond to the letter that we issued and that they do something about it without it having to be an issue that the Human Rights Committee addresses with the United States. Since the executive clemency board made up of Governor Rick Scott and cabinet members approved the new limits March 2011, the ACLU says only about 94 ex-felons have had their rights restored within a year of that period, compared to thousands in years past. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. The Gators Bleed Orange and Blue organization is holding a What Colors Do You Bleed campaign this week. This campaign is a competition in order to get more people to donate blood. Community Development Coordinator for Life South Community Blood Centers, Clay Gibbons, says this will help restock their blood supply. That plays a really good part in replenishing our hospitals from the holidays when thing, when the blood supply was kind of low. We're actually able to, life shop, we're able to actually have a decent amount of inventory on our shelves to then share the hospitals. According to Fox TV... T- Fox10TV.com, blood shortages reached an emergency level across the southeast, including Florida. Gibbons says North Florida needs 1,000 donors on average a week to supply local hospitals. He adds that Life South hopes to gain a good supply of blood through this competition. The goal is to actually have about five to seven days of blood on the shelf, on our shelf, meaning if we stopped collecting today, on average, we'd run out of each blood type five to seven days. But just last week, we were in an emergency appeal where we only had about one day supply. So it was really tough. It was just a difficult time for us. So a competition like this is perfect timing because we're actually able to put blood back on the shelves from the beginning of this month. Gibbon says last year the campaign brought in 1,393 donors in a week, and this year they hope to get around 1,400 donors. Gibbon says the winner of the competition gets something better than an award. There's really not like a traveling trophy or anything. What it is, it's, it's, it's bragging rights, but uh, we look at it that both the blood centers are winners because we're replenishing our shelves and our the shelves of our hospitals. 
The What Colors Do You Bleed campaign will last from today until Friday. Gibbons says the University of Florida and surrounding Gainesville community is a loyal donor base. He adds that Life South Community Blood Centers are always needing help and hopes the community will step up. According to the recently released AAA fuel price brief, gas prices have been on the rise since the beginning of January. AAA spokesperson Jessica Brady says we should start to see prices level off in February. What we're going to see is a little bit of stability with probably some incremental uh, fluctuation. You know, we've, we've seen prices really move between about five and eight cents plus and minus. So we really haven't seen huge jumps and whatever gains we've made have ended up being dropped off as the weeks progress. So I think we're going to probably stay within that maybe zero to 10 cent fluctuation. Although recently gas prices have been on the rise in Florida, they are still lower than a year ago. The national average price of regular gas is $3.34 lower than Florida's fuel prices. Brady adds it is normal for the national average to be lower than individual state prices. The national average tends to be quite lower than a lot of states just because it encompasses not only those states with some high averages, but also a lot of the states that are seeing very low averages as well. So it's not uncommon to see that Florida's average is in fact higher than the national average. AAA says Florida's average price of fuel is $3.42 and remains stable since last week. Brady says the month of March is when we will start to see more change. We've seen oil prices rise since about January 1, but we haven't seen too much fluctuation in gas prices. I think February, you know, we're probably going to see some upticks, nothing too major. But once we get to March and refineries start to switch over to the summer blend fuel and demand starts to pick up, I think it'll be that time that we really start to see prices inch up. Brady adds they are not expecting record-breaking prices this year. She says they are not anticipating the national average to go above $3.80, including hurricanes or anything that could potentially disrupt supply. Recent reports have shown overall enrollment decline from community and state colleges across the state, including the College of Central Florida. Officials say many Florida colleges have similar findings. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leanna Scacchetti spoke with Executive Vice Chancellor at the Florida Department of Education, Dr. John Holdnick, about the trends and their effects on colleges around the state. So one of my first questions is, just looking at enrollment in community and state college colleges throughout Florida, are there some sort of trends in the enrollment as far as numbers going up or down? Uh, sure. Over the last uh, five years, the Florida college system experienced incredible growth, uh, about 30% over that period of time. But um, the enrollments in Florida are counter-cyclical in nature. We've seen this pattern over the last 30 years, uh, and we track these uh, uh, data points. And uh, we're counter-cyclical, or the enrollment in our institutions is counter-cyclical uh, to the uh, employment rates in Florida. So when unemployment goes, uh, or employment goes down, our enrollment goes up. And uh, so when the economy turns south, uh, the enrollments in our colleges went up a significant amount. Uh, now that the economy is doing a little bit better, we're seeing a uh, tapering off of those enrollment growth patterns. Have you seen specifically, is there, a, um, you know, despite the overall trends, is there a significant um, popularity with certain degrees or programs or certain decline with certain degrees or programs? As a matter of fact, there is. At the end of, uh, or, or for 2000. 11-12, the enrollments for the entire college system at the end of the year ended up being uh, relatively flat, uh, less than a 1% decline. Uh, we saw the greatest percentage of 
of drop over prior year growth uh, occurred in the what we call A&P or general college transfer courses. Those courses that would apply to an associate arts degree, some people call it a general education package. Um, and also in our college prep and post-secondary vocational areas, uh, and the post-secondary vocational are associate in science degree courses, things like uh, um, an associate of science degree in nursing, um, accounting, some of those kinds of areas. So we've seen a uh, uh, those have taken a larger decline than some of the other programmatic areas that we have. Now, in, as that might make sense, that was also the area where we had the largest amount of growth over the previous five years. And how does the Florida as a whole compare with the rest of the country as far as enrollment numbers? Is it generally on par with the rest of the country? Looking at enrollment trends, I'd, I'd say that we're, we're probably right in the middle of the pack. But on the uh, overall enrollment patterns, if, um, if you look at the nation as a whole, um, it's kind of a mixed bag depending upon what part of the country it's in. Florida's been a little bit delayed in its economic recovery, so some uh, states have shown a uh, decline in enrollment a little bit sooner than we did. Uh, and then there's a few that are uh, were hit perhaps even a little bit worse than us that are behind. Remember now, I mentioned the counter-cyclical enrollment uh, patterns in Florida. That's pretty much true for two-year colleges around the country. And when you look at the state of Florida, are there certain parts of Florida that seem to be faring better with enrollment or perhaps certain colleges? Um, can you determine that by area? There are a few colleges that uh, still are reporting enrollment growth uh, as of this fall, um, and those are mostly in the um, central to south Florida region. Uh, Northwest Florida probably has as a group the largest um, reductions uh, in enrollment uh, across the board as a, a region of Florida. We have a couple isolated institutions in different parts of the state that have had some pretty significant enrollment declines based on local um, factors that are going on. But if, if you're looking at kind of a generalized uh, view of what's going on in regions of the state, uh, Northwest Florida is probably faring a little bit less well in terms of enrollment than um, South Florida. Why is that? Do we know? Um, Regional factors are different. You know, the economy in the uh, South Florida, uh, everything that I've, I've read on uh, economic recovery in Florida, Miami was probably the first part of the state to to show significant signs of improvement, uh, housing starts and those kinds of things that economists follow along with. So, you know, I think it's a combination of factors, primarily uh, focused around the economy and economic recovery and just that it happens at a different pace depending upon the populations. And Northwest Florida is, has a significantly smaller population than either Central or South Florida and certainly much smaller than the two regions put together. Remember now as a state though, over even though we have enrollment uh, de enrollments declining this year, as a system we're up still over 30% over where we were four or five years ago. And how does decreased enrollment, perhaps besides, um, you know, the rolling in of money, decreased enrollment, how does that affect a college? 
Well, it's always a challenge if you have a downturn in enrollment to address um, programmatic needs. If if uh, one specific uh, academic program, for instance, and I'm going to pick nursing, though it's not one that ever experiences a decline in enrollment. It, it's probably one of our most popular programs altogether. Uh, but if you had a program like a nursing or an accounting or a biology or something like that, uh, where students working on an associate's degree um, and you have a downturn in enrollment, uh, it's a little bit more um, problematic to maintain uh, full-time faculty because you're never sure how many you're going to need. Uh, most full-time faculty have long-term contracts, and so you need to be able to uh, uh, accommodate and address those kinds of issues. And with enrollment factors in our system, you know, you never know when the economy is going to to make a little juggle or some other factor occurs in a particular college district and we'll have a downturn in enrollment one semester or even one year and then it'll pop up the next year. And and so those kind of fluctuations uh, make it a bit of a challenge to try and run a, uh, a college or, or even a university, same kind of problem. Today, the Gainesville Police Department is ticketing drivers and pedestrians who do not stop or yield at crosswalks. The Pedestrian High Visibility Program was launched due to recent pedestrian crashes. Public Information Officer Ben Tobias talks about the recent events. There were two incidents, one in the same um, night, one of which the, uh, a female actually got off the bus and then darted across the road. Um, at that point, I believe she was uh, cited for the accident. And then another one where uh, a vehicle did not yield to the um, pedestrian. The program is funded by the Florida Department of Transportation and aims to reduce traffic fatalities and injuries by implementing enforcement campaigns targeted vehicles not, yield, not yielding to pedestrians in crosswalks. Tobias says they will also target pedestrian violations. If you drive down the Midtown area around 1700 West and you see people just littered across the medians outside of the crosswalks, that's just as dangerous uh, because, you know, they may not see a car or something like that and they may dart out into traffic and, you know, cause an accident. The Gainesville Police Department said in a release today that in the first detail last Friday, 54 citations were issued within three hours and that students were extremely appreciative. Tobias says that other people have also thanked them. We've actually had the apartment complex managers come out and thank us because, uh, you know, we're we're ensuring that the crosswalk is used, you know, correctly. And uh, we've had citizens and even people, there's a retirement home down here, and they, even staff in the retirement home has come out and thanked us for being here. The intent of the project is to alter driver behavior with strict adherence to traffic laws. Tobias talks about the GPD's aim. Our goal this year is to have zero traffic fatalities, and that's a, a pretty lofty goal. But uh, we believe that by utilizing details such as this, that we can achieve it. All locations selected by the GPD have a high frequency, high frequency of traffic crashes and injuries. The consolidation of the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and the Department of Environmental Protection has led to a 28% increase in service levels across all state parks, as well as saved the state hundreds of thousands of dollars. FWC spokesperson Katie Purcell says the combined departments has allowed for a wider range of patrols throughout the state. Um, well, this process started last year to get um, kind of DEP and FWC and the Department of Agriculture working together a little bit more closely. And our agency, the FWC, actually um, 
acquired officers from DEP and Department of Agriculture. So we've got a larger agency, and those officers are able to help us patrol all over the state, including in our state parks. When the merger was approved last year, the FWC absorbed 145 new officers from the DEP. And Purcell says the larger staff has cut down on transportation expenses and led to faster response times. The more officers who are there, we can get there quickly, and it, it kind of cuts down on costs from officers traveling um, from different areas maybe, and just really it's definitely just more efficient all around. With increased patrols in the state parks, Purcell says the higher service levels have been noticed by many in the department. Our officers have definitely talked to people out in the field who are reaping the benefits and enjoying um, seeing the officers more, and it's really just been a great uh, working relationship with the park managers and DEP as well. The efficiencies created by the consolidation, signed into law by Florida Governor Rick Scott, are expected to save the state about $3 million over the next five years. State Senator Bill Montford, a Tallahassee Democrat and minority whip, says he's prepared to offer budget language to give state employees raises. Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports it's been more than five years since state employees got a raise. Florida's required 3% pension contribution law and the expiration of federal tax breaks has meant fewer dollars in the pockets of state employees. Senator Bill Montford, who sits on the Senate Appropriations Committee, says he can't predict the state's budgetary future, but he's prepared to put an offer on the table for state workers. Whatever it will be, and I haven't quite decided yet. I'm waiting on, on the numbers, but uh, my proposal will be uh, reasonable and certainly uh, an attainable amount. Governor Rick Scott has said he supports performance-based pay raises for state employees, but other lawmakers seem less sure. State employees could find themselves competing against teachers. Scott's proposal for across-the-board teacher raises could cost the state $480 million. It's still too early to tell where the money will come from. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. One, 11 million undocumented immigrants could be provided a path to gain legal status soon. The framework for an immigration reform bill was announced today by four Republican and four Democratic senators. One of these senators is Marco Rubio from Florida, where the issue is at the forefront for the 2016 presidential election. Dr. Philip Williams, director of the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Florida, believes that this bill could shape the 2016 presidential election for the Democratic Party. Obama, during, in his 2008 election victory, uh, relied very much on the support of Latino voters. And I think it's even more clear that this last election in 2012, that particularly in some crucial swing states like Florida, Colorado, Nevada, and even Virginia, that Latinos were an important part of his winning coalition in those states. Williams says that Republicans are concerned as well because the Latino vote has been declining for the party. I think on the part of Republicans, there's real concern that they have essentially lost the, the Latino electorate. Um, over the last several elections, their support at the presidential level, level has been eroding amongst the Latino electorate. Uh, this last election, they barely um, had 25 percent uh, support amongst Latino voters. Many are calling this bill an amnesty for the people who are illegally in this country. But Dr. Williams contends that these people would not be getting off scot-free and would pay in some way. And it, it's not an amnesty in the sense that first, uh, these in individuals, people who, who are here in, un, in an unauthorized status, 
they would have to pay a penalty. Uh, they would have to pay back taxes uh, if they ha- haven't been keeping up with taxes. Many unauthorized immigrants pay taxes in many different forms, including income tax. Another important fact Williams wants people to know is that if these people are given some financial security, they will be more likely to contribute to the economy in a much bigger way. Uh, once they have some security in terms of their legal status, they're much more likely not just to be sort of everyday consumers in our economy, but to actually make you know, purchases of bigger ticket items, to, to invest in this economy, to contribute even in a bigger way than they're already doing. The bill is in its early stages and is only a framework at this point in time. It is going to require a lot more work to put together, but President Barack Obama says it, quote, is his top legislative priority. Florida leads the country for the number of public officials convicted of federal corruption charges. That's evidence a number of lawmakers and activist groups say that shows ethics are a big problem in the state. They've been pushing for ethics reforms for years. And Florida Public Radio's Reagan McCarthy reports this coming session, a new ethics measure is expected to be one of the first bills passed. The most common ethics infractions are small, like turning a financial disclosure form in late or leaving out a little information. And it's something Senator John Thrasher says most lawmakers have done. I suspect that every one of us, I bet you, every one of us sitting here today probably has made some kind of mistake on our financial disclosure, including myself. Uh, Not intentionally. But Dan Krasner, the executive director of the government watchdog group Integrity Florida, says sometimes even mistakes involving seemingly small things like financial disclosure forms aren't that innocent. Sometimes it's just a minor mistake. Sometimes it's a major one. There have been plenty of cases where someone received a gift. Uh, In the case of uh, former state senator Jim Norman, his wife received a gift from a political fundraiser and friend of of the family of a $500,000 home in, in Arkansas, and that, that home was left off the form. And, and we understand that the, the senator consulted with an attorney, and there are attorneys out there. Some give, give good advice, some give bad advice. And former Senate President Mike Herodopoulos was publicly scolded in 2011 for an ethics breach when he left information off his financial disclosure form. Krasner says corruption happens on all levels of government and regardless of party. And he says putting an end to it is important. Because we want to trust again. You know, public trust and confidence in our government at all levels is low. So we need that to increase. We need, so let's increase public trust and let's improve the reputation of Florida. The Florida Senate Ethics and Elections Committee bill would help clear up those disclosure problems. It would give lawmakers time to fix any mistakes they did make once those mistakes are brought to their attention. It would also let officials file reports online. And Clearwater Republican Senator Jack Latvala, who introduced the bill, says it also gives the Florida Commission on Ethics more teeth to collect fines from people who fail to take care of their forms or errors on time. Latvala says the legislation touches on a number of issues that have needed to be addressed for years. My personal opinion as someone who's been around the uh, process of the legislature and politics in Florida for 30 or 40 years now, that this is, I believe, the most comprehensive attempt at ethics reform that we have uh, had in at least 30 years in Florida. The measure also requires constitutionally elected officers to take an ethics training course and puts more rules in place for the use of special political funds, also known as CCEs, or Committees of Continuous Existence, a fund Latvala says has been heavily abused in the past. 
What we're trying to get away from is the members who kind of ruined this for, and, and by basically using them every day during session to entertain their friends. Former Representative Chris Dorworth received a lot of media attention for what some say was a misuse of his CCE. Though Dorworth was in financial trouble, he was able to keep up what critics call a lavish lifestyle through the use of his CCE. Latvala says that's the kind of thing the law would be intended to stop. The measure also addresses a rule that prohibits lawmakers from lobbying the legislature for two years after retiring. Under the state's current rules, there's no wait time before they can lobby the governor and executive offices. A loophole former House Speaker Dean Cannon appears poised to take advantage of with the launch of his new lobbying firm. The Senate measure would bar such practices in the future. Krasner, who's been one of the leading forces pushing for ethics reform in the state, says he likes the direction the measure's taking especially when it comes to enforcement. The measure passed out of the Senate Ethics and Elections Committee unanimously, though it received some criticism from the Florida League of Cities for an amendment on one provision that would extend the measure's dual employment prohibition to local officials. And Senator Jack Latvala says it's got a long road to travel before becoming law. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. This morning in Pinellas County, educators and Governor Rick Scott kicked off a new system that lets Florida students get free algebra help while they're on Facebook. Florida's Public Radio's Janelle Irwin reports Algebra Nation is a statewide service created for schools by the University of Florida and a private company called Study Edge that interfaces mobile apps and social media. A simple algebra problem headlined the white smart board in the library at Dixie Hollins High School in Kenneth City. A student solved it, and the answer, 52, was symbolic. That's the percentage of high school freshmen who don't pass their end-of-year assessments in Algebra 1. Donald Pemberton is the director of the Lastinger Center for Learning and College of Education at the University of Florida. He said teachers came to him and asked for help. Number one, they had incredible concerns that almost half of their students uh, were failing to pass the end-of-course exam in algebra, which is a state exam, and if you fail to pass that exam, you fail to get credit uh, for the course, and then um, your whole academic progress is stymied. Unlike some homework help services, the Algebra Nation program is free for students and to schools. Pemberton said it's also available 24-7, which works better for high school students who have increasingly unpredictable schedules. So if you're factoring a polynomial after football practice at 11 o'clock at night and you can't remember what your teacher taught you that morning, you would have the opportunity to get help then and there. Teachers can also use the online tool to improve their curriculum. Governor Rick Scott spoke with a teacher who has a 100% pass rate in her algebra class. He said even teachers with high success rates can benefit from the extra help. She saw that the tool allowed her to see other teaching methods and improved her ability to reach more students. Alicia also said that not all students got the highest grade, and although they passed, this tool might help them score higher. She also noted that the same day her students started using the program, two students who had never raised their hands in class were very active on the program. It sparked something in these kids who otherwise would have remained silent. 
UF partnered with Study Edge to put the program together. That company specializes in creating online content for college students. Ethan Fieldman is their president and co-founder. He said the project cost UF about $400,000, and it built on tools that were already available. We took this platform that works for college students. We adapted it for high school students. We added end-of-course exam practice tools that look like the end-of-course exam, and we, and we built out better uh, mobile apps and just kind of customized it. And actually, I could tell you thousands of ways we customized it. The the program officially launched today, but has been available for students for a couple of weeks. So far, about 2,000 students have used it. Erica Hardison teaches Algebra 1 at Dixie Hollins and said her students have responded well to Algebra Nation because it reaches them in ways they're already used to, and it doesn't feel like doing homework. They know how to use Facebook like the back of their hand, so they just go on, log in. The wall is kind of like if you guys are from, everybody's familiar with Facebook, but the wall is kind of like the old Facebook wall, and they're posting. And as soon as they get on it, they are like hooked for the most part. I had a student who is an excellent English student. He loves English, but he does not really, he hasn't found his joy, let me say, for mathematics yet. So I got him to get on it and sign up, and now he's like, did you see my post? And he's posting, he's helping other students, and he's really starting to explore mathematics. The program is also available for middle school students taking Algebra 1. Apps are available for both Android platform and iPhones. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Janelle Irwin in Pinellas County. The idea of Florida collecting more taxes from online retailers is getting bipartisan support among state lawmakers. As Florida Public Radio's Jessica Palumbo reports, what was once an idea pushed mainly by Democrats is getting the attention of Republicans now that Florida businesses are calling for relief. Kim Williams owns a stationery and party supplies store called the Polka Dot Press in Tallahassee. We try to outservice everybody. I mean, I preach that in my store to my staff. She says that service is her competitive edge because when she sets her retail prices on things like napkins and cards, she has a hard time competing with online sellers' prices. She says it's because Florida doesn't collect sales tax from out-of-state retailers who sell their merchandise through the Internet. Anyone who's ever browsed for something in a store before buying the same item online online, tax-free, knows what she's up against. From a store owner standpoint, it would really level the playing field and allow us to be more competitive with other brands. Williams is not alone in her frustration. John Fleming, a spokesman for the Florida Retail Federation, says some Florida store owners must collect 8% more in taxes than out-of-state online sellers do. There is a built-in price disadvantage for them. The state sales tax is 6%. Local option taxes add on another percent or two to that. And he says the problem is twofold. The other part of the loophole, he says, is if a seller doesn't have a physical presence in the state, like a brick-and-mortar store, Florida law leaves it up to the buyer to report how much use tax they owe on every online purchase. There is a loophole big enough to drive a delivery truck through. Fleming says his federation advocates tweaking the definition of physical presence a retailer has in a state. For example, that could mean if they have a distribution center instead of just a storefront, they'd have to collect sales tax. And he says other large states are trending that way. New York has done something about it. Uh, Amazon.com, the biggest Internet-only retailer, is collecting in New York. They're doing it in Texas. They're doing it in California. So of the big four, Florida is the last one to address this issue. The Florida Department of Revenue, which is tasked with enforcing tax collection, tries to educate people that they must pay use tax on online purchases. 
Mark Zich with the department says last year people voluntarily reported $6.6 million in use taxes to the state. And Florida recovered an additional $9 million by inspecting things like customs records and the inventories of tractor trailers driving in from out of state. We will see if someone has bought furniture from North Carolina or art from other places, and then we will write them saying, have you paid tax on it? But even though the state targets shippers to collect use taxes, Dominic Calabro with the think tank Florida Tax Watch says state law is not keeping up with the explosive growth in online sales. And that means more and more taxes are going uncollected. Thanks for tuning into the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Kaylee Chambers. And I'm Shane Chernoff.